Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Nathan. It's my privilege to open God's uh, word with you this morning. Pretty moving video as we consider fellow brothers and sisters in Christ laying their lives down for the sake of Christ. And this is very much the theme of the Reformation. It's one of the lasting characteristics from the Reformation, the the tenacity and the, the perseverance of those who stood firm amidst much persecution. They were focused on the truth of of the gospel of Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. They were centered around God's word as their guiding and light and their final authority in all things pertaining to life and godliness. We've just viewed a modern example of that. In the midst of turmoil and war inside Syria, we see the same issues of the 16th century beamed into our living rooms, into this building. As followers of Christ, persevere. As followers of Christ, fight the good fight. Men and women who rest on the grace of God in the midst of slander, in the midst of trial, amongst the anti-sentiment towards Christianity and truth that pervades our society. Above all, folks, we are called to persevere because we have a higher hope We have a truth that sets our hearts free. We have a truth in God's word that shapes us to follow him wholeheartedly. So what is perseverance? How would you define perseverance? Well, for me to try and help me understand this particular term of perseverance, I identify with one particular thing. As I look around this this congregation, most parents in this room and most young adults within this room probably will understand what I'm talking about. You know, for me, perseverance has been demonstrated in all its entirety as I try and teach my children how to drive a car. Especially if you're trying to teach them how to drive a manual car. You see, perseverance is required. See, there's great expectation, right, when you start teaching someone how to drive a car, that the skill acquired is going to, going to be mastered quickly because there's this great expectation. Firstly, the expectation of the parent, I no longer need to trip my kids from A to B, C to D, E to F. I no longer will have to be the Uber. That's the great expectation of the parents. The great expectation of the child is, oh, I have freedom. I have my own set of wheels. I can go to and from as I wish. But in the midst of these two great expectations is this process of perseverance. 
you know, because perseverance and, and teaching this skill um, of driving a manual car could cause great tribulation, wearing out of a couple of clutches and, and, and perhaps a, a couple of dings here and there. It could cause great distress. Encourage you, folks. Send him to a driving school. No. <laughs> Persevere. It could cause great distress. Could cause great danger. I remember a time we were teaching one of our, our I won't mention the child's name here. You can you can guess which, which one of the three it could have been. We were actually driving on the wrong side of the road, so we weren't in this country, we were in another country. And we we're teaching this particular child how to drive. And um, we came up to a fairly large intersection, you know, um, double lanes both ways, set of lights. And we were about 200 metres off, off the, uh, the set of lights and the uh, light turned orange. So what would you do if the light turned orange? You would slow down, right? No, 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 no. That was an indication of almost like a green go sign. Let's get through that intersection before it turns red. Ah, perseverance causes great distress and great tribulation and potentially great danger. You know, as a Christian, we're called to persevere for the name and the sake of the gospel of Christ. One of the great chapters we find on perseverance is in Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have Bibles, we have um, some up here. I'd encourage you to have a Bible with you open today. We're going to be looking and working through this text. My heart and my desire as we minister the, the word together is that you'll go away from this place understanding perseverance and understanding your role in that as a follower of Christ. So Romans chapter 8. I'm going to choose to read from the, the back part of this chapter. So we'll start at verse 18. Let's read together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all, these, all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn 
among brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I think I'll sit down. Isn't that tremendous? Isn't it a tremendous text about persevering in the faith? Because nothing can separate you from Christ's love. Let's unpack this a little bit further. Let's go back to verse 18. So what does this passage teach us about persevering? You'd be really interested to note and and some of you may have experienced this, but it starts off by talking about suffering. The Christian life, folks, is not some glorious blessing all the time. There are incredible blessings being a follower of Christ, but more often than not, there is suffering. But remember, according to these verses, that suffering is only a momentary light affliction because suffering leads to glory suffering and what we have in this life as we as we wrestle with the flesh as we wrestle with the devil as we wrestle with our own ineptness and our own unfaithfulness is part of God's process to conform us into the image of Christ It's interesting, he, he talks about suffering, and, and not only talks about suffering of you and I, but he, he drops it out to all of creation. You notice that? And what's the metaphor he's using? Let me see if you can pick the metaphor he's using here. Verse 18. Uh, verse 19. Eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 22. Groaning together in the pains of childbirth. 
Verse 23, saints groan inwardly, awaiting eagerly for adoption. Verse 25, waiting patiently for the hope to be revealed. This is a metaphor of childbirth. We've experienced that three times in our family. And uh, it is an incredible, you have an eager expectation about this child coming into this world, right? Who does? Come on, parents. Were you eagerly anticipating a child? Okay. I know they're teenagers and now you're not so eager, but that's okay. But when this miracle of conception and birth occurs, right, you have this eager expectation. But there's a part of persevering that is required for the birth of the child. And Paul uses this language here, the pains of childbirth. And, you know, the pains of the childbirth is just not for the mother. Okay, I'm just going to state this right here and there. I remember when our first child was born. I have never had my hand crushed so much in my entire life. Crushed. So, I'm not lightening that to what Julie went through, but it is a team effort. All right? Honestly. I know I'm digging a bigger and bigger hole here, but, but, you know, because it's probably the pain after childbirth that dad feels in that pocket. I won't go there. <laughs> yeah, I'll just, I'll just move out of that one particularly right here and now. But you see what um, Paul is doing here, and he's, he's relating the future glory to come. It's a future expectation like the coming of a child. But in part of that process, there is some perseverance required. Some perseverance It's interesting also to note here, and I think we just need to be reminded of this, that we're not the only ones, the the children of God, those who put their faith and trust in Christ, who are waiting for this eagerly. The world in which we live in is also waiting. The physical universe is groaning because of sin. You get that? The creation is groaning, and boy do we see that. On the positive side, the creation grows. The day of redemption is coming. Think about that. As the creation grows, groans, the day of redemption is coming. I just want to draw your attention to verse 23 in this first section. This is incredibly encouraging. It's just said, not only creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as if we eagerly for the adoption as sons, as we wait eagerly for the adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This word is a very uncommon word in the New Testament, the word first fruits. It's used three times by Paul here in Romans. Uh, once in Romans eleven sixteen. So if you're taking notes, you could write that down. And he uses that uh, as part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, and the whole batch is holy in relation to the nation of Israel in Romans eleven. He argues from that portion that 
the first fruits of Israel, the faith of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are the guarantee of a future salvation history. The second sense in which he uses this word is in Romans 16.5, where he, he, in Romans 16, I don't think many people would read through Romans 16. It's just a whole list of names. Paul just starts thanking people. He he strings out a whole list of names. But in verse 5, he says, Greet also the church in in their house. Greet my beloved Epanetus, who was the first convert of Christ in Asia. Same word, first fruits. First convert. And then here in Romans 8.23, we see almost a reversal of, of the concept of first fruits, right? Because in the Old Testament, the concept of first fruits was, was the people going before God to worship and sacrifice and they give them the first part of the offering, the first fruits. But read this carefully. Who receives the first fruits here? The saints. Paul reverses the Old Testament relationship of giver and receiver of first fruits. Not only so, but he ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption. Here is not God, but believers who are the recipients of the first fruits. And the recipients of the first fruit in the context is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwelling within us, shaping us, refining us, conforming us to this image of His Son. And this is an incredible uh, part of perseverance. It's a part of what we talk, talk about being eternally secure because God has granted us faith in Christ for His glory. The Spirit dwells within us as a guarantee of our position in Christ. If you want further proof of this, just flick over to Ephesians chapter 1. Wonderful verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him, that means in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Folks, that's a wonderful truth when it comes to fighting the good fight. The Spirit guarantees our position. Nothing can take you away from your position in Christ. And this will be further seen as we read at the back end of chapter 8. So, the Spirit is our guarantee. He is the first fruits of our glorification second part of the the chapter verse 26 and 27 we see the role of the spirit for the saint the Holy Spirit intercedes for us 
Verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. Has anyone ever felt like that, by the way? Prayer is one of the hardest disciplines right in the Christian life. Does everyone agree with that? I would hope so. It is one of the hardest disciplines in the Christian life. Realize you have the Spirit of God within you to help you with that process. When you don't feel like praying, get on your knees anyway. Because in our weakness, by getting on our knees, we're acknowledging that we are God's and that only He can help. So the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Here's this whole metaphor of childbirth again coming through, isn't it? The Spirit is interceding and groaning on our behalf. The Spirit guarantees our adoption by being a first fruit and and He seals us as we read in Ephesians. And here the Spirit intercedes for us on our behalf. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that Christ himself is our mediator. Here we're told that the Spirit intercedes. I think sometimes we just don't understand the depth of, of this and the process of persevering. Read verse 27. It's very insightful in relation to the Spirit interceding with groanings that are too deep for words. For he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Who searches the hearts? Who's the he? God himself. And God who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit deceives for the saints according to the will of God. That's kind of a frightening statement as well as an encouraging statement, right? God knows our hearts. God knows our hearts. And God uses the Spirit to comfort, to encourage, to refine us according to His will. To persevere is to rely on the Spirit's work in your life. To persevere is to be shaped by the fruit of the Spirit and not to be governed by the fruit of the flesh. We move down to the next uh, sentence, 28 through 30. A wonderful three verses which is quoted often. I'm just going to make very minor observations here. Because we've had the Spirit's work, we know what Christ's work is, and now God. For we know, for all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among the brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. 
So the Spirit guarantees our salvation. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that we cannot utter. And God works within us to conform us to the image of his Son. The Spirit intercedes, Christ mediates, God confirms us into the image of his Son. The triune God is intimately involved in our sanctification. You know, God directs the affairs of life in such a way that for those who love him, the outcome is always beneficial. And the good that God is talking about here in verse 28, and sometimes we pull these verses out of context, right? The good here relates directly to being conformed into the image of Christ. The good is the conformity into the likeness of Christ. That is God's purpose, that you and I as followers of Christ are conformed into the image of his Son. It's a continual process. The language here is a continual process. It's in the present tense. It shows us that God is always working through his spirit in our lives. So we are conformed. The relationship is, a, is not static. It's a dynamic, continuous thing. He's conforming you today. He will conform you tomorrow. He will conform you next week, next month, the following year. It's interesting here, and, and sometimes we can look a bit confused of it, the foreknowledge and the predestination in 29 relate not to God's electing purpose, but to conforming you to the image of his Son. Verse 30 relates to his electing purpose in salvation. But these verses, 28 and 29, is all about being conformed to his son. And then we move on to the final few wonderful verses which I want to dwell on today. What then shall we say to these things? The creation groans we groan, the Spirit intercedes, God is conforming us, God has called us, He has justified us, He's glorified us. So what do we say to those things? What do we say? What does the Word of God tell us? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, this paragraph of chapter 8, we are adopted into God's family, verse 15. We have received the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our final redemption, verse 23. The Holy Spirit takes our prayers and intercedes before God, verse 26. Though we are sinners by nature, through faith we have been acquitted of all wrong. That's mean we are justified, verse 30. 
Our future glorification is so certain that God speaks of it as an, something that's already taken place. Right, you know, our future glorification has not taken place. Right? I look at Scott and he is not glorified. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> I look at Shabu and he's not glorified. I look at Nathan and he's not glorified. John's definitely not glorified. Um, so we, we, um, we, we look around. We, we are, but the Word of God tells us that it is so certain. He uses an arist here. It's so certain that God speaks of us of, of it as already have taken place. And this can only be explained by the fact that all future events are determined by God's prior decree, his sovereign purpose. Paul could speak of glorification in the past tense here because he is so certain that it will will take place. That should through your hearts, folks, the certainty of God's plan and purpose. So then we we read these six or so questions. God is for us, who can be against us? And he prefaces this by actually giving us an example of the gospel. Of course God is for us. It's almost a rhetorical question. Third class conditional clause, we call it. And the answer is emphatically, yes, of course God is for us. And he restates this by saying that God is for us. Go look at the cross. If you want proof that God is for you, look at the cross. God didn't spare his son. He gave him up. He gave him up for us all. But you may be here today, you may not have experienced that. Your sin will separate you from a holy God. Your self-centeredness, your view of even trying to earn your way into heaven will separate you from God. That's what the Reformation was about, right? The church at the time was saying that you must do X, Y, and Z to obtain salvation. The Word of God was saying something completely different. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Do you have that assurance and that security? That God's sacrifice, that his son, who gave it all to deal with your sin, is calling you to himself. Folks, if you're wrestling with this question, get before the Lord. Repent. Say, Lord, I need to follow you. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the hour. Now, if the Spirit of God is working in your heart, don't quench that spirit, folks. Get right with the Lord. Secondly, he says in verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, I think we understand this, right? As followers of Christ, we live in a society that's consistently bombarding us with things that are against our faith. 
Let's just think about the last few months. Marriage, euthanasia. Abortion. Think about those things that are infiltrating our society and the accusations we receive when we decide to stand up for the truth that we know. You know these things, folks. You know these when you're sitting in your offices, when you're sitting uh, with your friends who don't know Christ and they slur and slander your belief. They call you a bigot or a fundamentalist. Or they might not be that forthright, but under their breath they're thinking, no. Let me encourage you by these words. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who can? Because it's God who justifies. Paul brings it right back to the fact that it does not matter what people will say. God has justified you. He has redeemed you. Stand on that solid ground. That's the ground we should all be standing on. Who is it that condemns? The same sort of question, isn't it? Well, no one can condemn you because Christ has paid the price of condemnation. Start of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Verse 35. And then we have those lists. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword. The Syrian video. Can that separate us from the love of God? No. Can teaching your kids to drive a car, can that separate you from the love of God? No. And then he does something really interesting. He grabs a quote from Psalm 44. For as it is written, he uses this as an example to to build the argument. And he grabs this one-liner out of Psalm 44, verse 22. I encourage you today to go and read Psalm 44. We haven't got time to read it today, but go and read it. It was astounding as I read through this. It was a psalm by the sons of Korah. And basically the psalm is broken up into three verses. Not as in verse in the Bible, but three stanzas of musical verses. The first eight verses, uh, the, the psalmist just pours out his praise to God for the battles he's, God has won on the people's behalf. Verses 1 through 8. The next nine, ten verses from 9 through 22 is an accusation by the psalmist against God for not acting. And this is where this comes out. For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the psalmist lament is this. Hey, we have followed you. We have kept your promises. We've acknowledged that you are our God. But you don't seem to be there. You don't seem to be there, God, when we need you. We feel you're against us. We feel, God, that you're dealing with us unjustly. I'd read this psalm because I'm sure that at times in our lives we feel the same way, right? We feel the same way. At times in our lives we feel that God is just not listening. At times in our lives we may think, well, God's not bending to my will. I hope you're not thinking that. 
of the psalm. So I was, I was astounded at the forthrightness of this psalm. I sort of wanted to read historically to see if the sons of Korah were absolutely blitzed after they wrote this. It appears they weren't. Because in the final few verses of the psalm, the, the psalmists, the sons of Korah, cry out to God afresh and they call out to God for him to remain faithful to his covenant love. It's a cry of perseverance. Even though we're going through this stuff, Lord, even though we feel as though that you are far removed from us, let us rest in the fact that your promises are true. And this is where Paul uses this particular Old Testament passage to impact what is going on with these six questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer to the question is firmly planted in verse 37. Highlighted in your Bibles. When you're feeling despondent, when you're feeling under pressure, when you're feeling like God is not there, realize that as you read these things, God is for you. None of these things can separate you from the love of God. That's in Christ Jesus. None of these things. Because you are more than conquerors. Interesting word. It's only used the one time in the New Testament. And this is it. And it was sort of the original context of being a conqueror was um, of a hero who could outstrip fast-moving chariots. There you go. But here, what Paul is affirming that through the suffering and persecution that is experienced by believers, you are more than conquerors. No tribulation, no distress, no persecution, no famine, no nakedness, no danger, no sword can separate you. No same-sex marriage law, no euthanasia law, no abortion law, no tagging against our religious rights and freedom can ever separate us from the love of God. Take courage. Because Paul affirms here that in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is a certainty of God's triumph in the lives of his people. This is a certainty. God's love is the certainty that he will triumph through us no matter what our circumstances no matter what we're facing. If we are his and following him, his spirit will intercede, his God will conform us to the image of his son, and we will triumph. When I consider the legacy of the Reformation, the series of which we've been doing, I'm always drawn to those many men and women who were martyred for the sake of the gospel especially under the rule of Bloody Mary in England. She reigned from 1553 to 58. She burned 288 people at the stake that we know of. There was probably more. A further 100 people died in prison before getting to the stake. These martyrs died not because of a criminal offence, but because of their commitment and perseverance to God's word and his authority in their lives. 
They were solid around the sufficiency of Christ and the finality of the atonement of Christ to save them. One of these martyrs, Hugh Latimer, was considered the most powerful preacher of God's word in England at that time. Formerly a Catholic and a strong refuter of the Protestant Reformation, his life was transformed, a bit like Paul on the road to Damascus. It was transformed and the gospel impacted him. Latimer became one of the six royal chaplains to Edward VI during his reign. Edward VI was a wonderful, wonderful, godly king. However, when he died, Bloody Mary took over. She was a papist of all papists. She ascended the throne. Because of that, Latimer's days were numbered. He was martyred back to back with one of his close friends, Nicholas Ridley. So they put him together on the stake back to back with the fire about to be to incarcerate them. And this was one of the famous lines which I want to leave with you from that martyrdom. This was Latimer speaking to his mate Ridley, who's tied back to back as the flames start creeping up their bodies, as they start dying for the cause of Christ. He says this. I can't get this out of my head. Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley. And play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. My encouragement to you. Be of good comfort, men and women of Canterbury Gardens. And play the man. Because, as the word of God tells us in verse 38 and 39 of Romans chapter 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God in Christ Jesus. Take those verses, memorize those verses, persevere to the end, to the glory of God.